Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The United States now needing to trust the Taliban to get Americans and allies out of Afghanistan. How did we get here? The lead starts right now. A dozen people reportedly dead and the Taliban crushing opposition, clashing with protesters, the same Taliban the U.S. is working with to try to get evacuees to the airport. We're live in Kabul. The battle over masks is escalating in the United States and booster shots going into arms, but still so many unanswered questions. So Dr. Anthony Fauci will join us to answer them live. Plus, a standoff with police, a suspect outside the U.S. Capitol today claiming to have a bomb. What led him to it? What is his motivation? The breaking details ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with our worldly today, the rush to evacuate Americans and Afghan allies out of Kabul. This afternoon, the U.S. State Department announced 6,000 people are inside the Kabul airport right now. All, we're told, all of them are fully cleared and, we're told, will soon fly out of the country. Twenty flights are expected to leave the Kabul airport tonight, but there are still massive issues for too many others. Sources telling CNN that the State Department advised thousands of local employees to head to the airport yesterday, but many of them simply could not get there. They were either caught in the crowds of thousands waiting outside the airport gates. They were beaten by the Taliban for attempting to leave. They were stopped at checkpoints. President Biden has pledged that U.S. forces will remain in Afghanistan until all Americans are evacuated, even if that means keeping U.S. troops on the ground past the August 31st withdrawal deadline. But the president stopped short of making that commitment to the thousands of Afghan allies who risked their lives to help U.S. forces during the war. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's live in Kabul. Clarissa, there are reports that 12 people have been killed around the Kabul airport in the last few days. How quickly is the situation on the ground deteriorating? Well, it it continues to be really bad, Jake, and it's not getting any better. And that's the worry. The hope was that perhaps the U.S. would have some kind of a plan in place or would be able through these negotiations with the Taliban to try to streamline or improve the process. But that's not what we're seeing at all. I've been speaking to people all day who have been at the airport trying to get into the airport. Uh, We're seeing these biblical scenes still, crowds of thousands lined up, pushing to try to get inside uh, the airport. And basically, unless you're American or one of the sort of partner NATO countries, you can't get in. I have managed to track down one Afghan who was a translator for uh, the U.S. military who managed to get in today, uh, escaping a beating as he did so. Because just for our viewers to better understand, you have the first perimeter, which is Taliban fighters, which is hard enough to get through. They're sometimes looking at documentation, sometimes not. They can't actually really read your documentation anyway, so it's completely arbitrary. Then you go through a second layer, which is Afghan Special Forces commandos, who are kind of the first line of defense uh, for the U.S. forces. And then you go through a third layer 
potentially, which is obviously the, the U.S. itself. So basically, it has become virtually impossible for people who are not uh, Americans or, or, or NATO na- nationalities to get into that airport. And as a result, many people, even those who are American or maybe dual nationals, are, are simply too afraid to risk it, which in turn then means that the planes aren't filling up fast enough to keep the evacuations moving. So the system is very much broken. And the question now is, how, do they, how does it get fixed? There's also this new reality setting in for the Afghan people of what life will be like under control of the extremists of the Taliban, including a, a curfew imposed for the first time this evening. Yeah, and today was the first day, you know, I've been telling you every day, Jake, well, it's strange and people are shocked and they're afraid, but it's relatively calm. Today was the first day where we started to feel uh, that tension really spiking. And I would say uh, sometime this afternoon for about half an hour, there was continuous gunfire. Uh, our colleague Najibullah Qureshi was actually out on the streets, saw this big crowd of people running uh, away from Taliban fighters. Essentially, they had been participating in a parade. Today is Afghanistan's Independence Day, and some very brave young Afghan patriots went out onto the streets waving Afghan flags, carrying one enormous sort of 200-yard-long Afghan flag. And even though the Taliban has said, you can fly whatever flag you want, you can participate in whatever religious festival you want, they're trying to showcase this new, modern, uh, more relaxed, if you will, approach, Uh, the protesters found themselves face-to-face with Taliban fighters who were firing shots uh, into the air, trying to clear them, causing panic, store shops, uh, store owners then closing down their stores for the day. And this also happening the day after a similar scene took place in Jalalabad when a bunch of protesters took down the Taliban flag and put up the Afghan flag. So a lot of people are now afraid that it hasn't taken that long for the Taliban to start showing its true colors, if indeed that's what's happening, Jake. And on that note, the, the Taliban has been making this very uh, strong propaganda effort trying to present the group as less brutal than when they ruled in the past. Um, President Biden, uh, among others, is not buying it. Take a listen. Do you believe the Taliban have changed? No. I think, let me put it this way. I think they're going through sort of an existential crisis about do they want to be recognized by the international community as being a legitimate government? I'm not sure they do. From what you're seeing on the ground, uh, what do you make of it? Well, it's interesting. I actually had this conversation with a Taliban commander the other day, who I must say was exceptionally articulate, spoke perfect English, uh, had studied law and political science. And he was very adamant that the Taliban does want to have international relations. It does want to be recognized, in part because the Taliban knows from its past and being an international pariah uh, that the purse strings only really open if you can be accepted and have a relationship with the international community. But as with so many things we're hearing from the Taliban, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually behave in a way that leads to that. And Clarissa, you also spoke with a senior Afghan officer who who said he used to be able to easily reach American generals and officers on on the ground there, and now no one's taking his call. Yeah, he is actually one of the senior officers in President Ashraf Ghani's security detail. He was with Ghani the night he fled the country. Ghani told him, I'm just going to get into the helicopter to do a press conference, and I'll be right back. 
He has been completely devastated by this, feels totally betrayed and abandoned, is in fear for his life, and says that he's been furiously texting all the generals who he used to have lunch with on a regular basis when they were here and, and with Ghani, etc. Uh, take a listen to what he said about his attempts now to reach out to General Miller and others. So now I am calling on Miller and the generals I was always in touch with. I can give all their names. They're on my phone. Unfortunately, since this has happened, they don't respond to my emails, and they won't respond to my messages. I am asking American forces for help because I was very close to them, and they shouldn't leave us like this. And also, they should help my colleagues. What is next for you? It's a very uncertain and complicated situation, and every second I see myself closer to death. And there you have it, Jake. I mean, this is from, I can't tell you how many messages I get like this from people, desperate pleas from those who worked in lockstep with the Americans for two decades. The other thing that officer said to me that really stuck with me, he said, I started working with the Americans before I had a beard and now I'm, I have a white beard. Uh, just to give you the sense of that sort of passage of time and the amount of stress and, and, and shared work together and this really deep sense, as you heard right there, of betrayal, of being cast aside. Suddenly nobody wants to answer his calls. Clarissa Ward, live in Kabul. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado, who's a former Army Ranger. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Congressman, uh, as someone who served in that country, what's your reaction when you see the horror and the chaos continuing to unfold at the Kabul airport. Hi, Jake. Yeah, my heart continues to break. Uh, I'm, I'm still in a little bit of shock that we're at this point in these scenes that I'm, I'm seeing and hearing about are unfolding and hearing that story about that general. My, my phone is ringing constantly. I'm getting text messages, uh, emails constantly uh, with stories like this. You know, I'm getting passport photos emailed to me of young children and visa photos, people begging for help. This is not the sign of a situation that's going well. Our honor as a country, our integrity as a country is at stake, our reputation is at stake, but our moral authority is at stake here. We have made promises over 20 years uh, to these men and women, these partners that stood by us. I may not be here talking to you today had it not been for the service of some of these Afghan friends and partners. Uh, and there are thousands of Americans that are in the same situation that I am in. Uh, we have an opportunity right now over the next couple of days and weeks to do the right thing. And that's why I'm calling on the administration to take some very clear steps to do so. Well, when you say the right thing, to tell me what you mean, because obviously uh, the Afghan translators and interpreters and others who, who applied for those special immigrant visas, those SIVs, them and their family, uh, it's about 19,000 plus uh, thousands more in their families. That's one group. I don't know that this general, uh, whose identity was obviously protected, is one of them. Does the U.S. owe that individual a trip to the United States? What exactly are you calling for? Yes, uh, we do owe somebody like that a trip to the United States and, and safe harbor after proper vetting. But the first step is getting them out of Afghanistan. None of this matters. None of the discussions about whether somebody goes in, in under a priority one visa, priority two visa, a special immigrant visa, none of that matters if they're dead in two days. So let's uh, get these folks to a, a U.S. military installation overseas, a third country. Then let's figure out the bureaucracy nightmare that continues to bog this down uh, and streamline that process. But we have to get folks out. Uh, you know, the uh, administration is saying that they expect to ramp this up to about 6,000 people a day. 
At the same time, there is this potential deadline at the end of the month, less than two weeks from now, uh, that we're looking at pulling out. Um, I'm no math genius, but those numbers don't add up. We have 20,000 special immigrant visa applicants alone. You multiply that by a factor of three for their family members. So that's 80,000 people right there. Another five to 10,000 American citizens. And that's not even counting the priority one and priority two visa holders like this general and these commandos, uh, civic society leaders, nonprofit leaders, and others that we have to get out. There's well over 100,000 people that we need to make every effort to get out because that's our obligation. That's, I think, our moral authority as a nation on the line. We have to get it done, but we yeah. can get it done. That's the other thing. We but, have the ability to do this. We have to make the commitment. Uh, and we should point out for viewers that you were supportive of President Biden's decision to withdraw all U.S. service members uh, from uh, Afghanistan. President Biden uh, defended that decision in a new interview with ABC News. Take a listen. Well, you don't think this could have been handled? This actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. Do you agree with that? I think there's a distinction to be made here about the decision to withdraw. And you're right, I've been supportive of the uh, ending of our combat mission in Afghanistan because after 20 years, it's proven there was no military solution here. And I continue to agree with that. I, I do not think that the non-combatant or the civilian evacuation has gone well and according to plan. I'm still trying to figure out what exactly that plan was. And that's why, Jake, I've been calling since April to start this evacuation. As soon as the president said he was going to withdraw American combat forces, I knew that we could be in this position, that we might be facing this challenge right now. And that's why I said, let's start the evacuation. Let's get American citizens out. Let's get our Afghan partners out. We could have been so much further ahead in a different position now had we started back in April when me and my colleagues started to call for this. We were beating the drums, talking to anybody who would listen to us to say, let's get it done. Uh, unfortunately, that did not happen. Now we're in the position of trying to get 100,000 plus folks out under a very difficult circumstances with limited options. That's why we need to put combat power in, secure the airport, open up the, the streets and the corridors around the airport and make every effort that we can make to get people to the airport and get them out. Yeah, the evacuation would have been a lot easier before the Taliban took over the entire country. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow, thank you as always for your time and, and of course thank you for your service. Online sleuths bringing insurrectionists to justice, what a group of so-called sedition hunters found hours before a court hearing, and it changed. What happened next? That's ahead. Plus, Dr. Anthony Fauci joining us live with Americans anxious as more COVID cases rise, more shots go into arms. Stay with us. In our world lead, day by day, hour by hour, that's how the Pentagon describes the U.S. rescue operation in Afghanistan. American forces have now flown 7,000 evacuees from the airport in Kabul since the Taliban's takeover this past Saturday, we're told. But the Pentagon could not answer exactly how many Americans are still trying and waiting to leave. Make no mistake, officials are terrified of the long list of things that could go wrong, which, over which they have no control, such as a terrorist attack. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins me from the State Department. Oren Lieberman's at the Pentagon. Kylie, the State Department is telling U.S. Embassy staff in Kabul to, to just go to the airport but even that is far easier said than done. What are you hearing? 
Yeah, State Department surging resources to the airport right now. They say that when that surge is done by tomorrow, they'll be at a higher capacity to get the personnel who make it into the airport out of the country on these military flights. But as you said, getting to the airport is the problem. I talked to one uh, Afghan who worked with the U.S. Embassy for years. He went to the airport with his family. He faced a horde of people. He faced an unsafe situation and had to leave. So the problem is, what are they doing for those people? The answer as of now is nothing. State Department told me they don't have the resources to be going outside of the airport right now. But fundamentally, what this boils down to, Jake, is a policy decision. They see what is happening, but they also see that most of the Americans are getting to the airport and they've decided that they don't want to do anything about the situation on the outskirts of the airport. So that is an area to watch. Are they going to change that policy or are they going to keep it in place? No indications right now of any change. And Oren, the Pentagon uh, says it can evacuate roughly 9,000 passengers a day from the Kabul airport. Right now, they're nowhere near that level. Will the Taliban allow this evacuation effort to go past the August 31st deadline? Well, we just learned a short time ago from a Marine general that they're processing twice as many people as yesterday at the evacuation control point. So the number's moving in the right direction, but it's certainly still very far away from being able to go through five to 9,000 people a day to get them on those flights. As for the Taliban, to some extent, this whole process has relied on a coordination with the Taliban. President Joe Biden yesterday opening the door to the possibility of staying uh, after August 31st with constant and daily communication with the Taliban on the ground in Kabul. It's worth noting that just a few hours before Biden's comments, neither the Secretary of Defense nor the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff made any mention of August 31st or the end of the month in their press briefing. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon, Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Thanks to both of you. Breaking news in our national lead, a surrender and an arrest after an hours-long standoff across from the U.S. Capitol. A man claimed to have a bomb, and he posted videos calling himself a patriot when he arrived at the Capitol. Police identify him as 49-year-old Floyd Ray Rosenberry. In the Facebook videos he posted for hours, Rosenberry repeatedly called for President Joe Biden to step down. He expressed frustration about the current situation in Afghanistan. He also frequently made pro-Trump posts on his social media. Police closed off streets and evacuated buildings in the area of the Capitol and Library of Congress. We're still waiting for more information about this incident. We will bring that to you when we get it. More third doses. But what about first doses? We'll talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci about the new vaccination booster push. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you in our health lead. A third U.S. senator has announced just moments ago that he tested positive for coronavirus. Democratic Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado has joined with independent Senator Angus King of Maine and Republican Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, who both also tested positive today. We are told all three are fully vaccinated and all three say they are experiencing mild symptoms and isolating. Obviously, we wish them all well. Major questions about boosters remain after the Biden administration announced that beginning next month, Adults will be eligible for boosters eight months after they had received their second dose of the vaccine. In just a moment, Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to join me to, to address some of these concerns. But first, the debate over masks in schools is escalating. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports, some states are now requiring that all staff be vaccinated. And one school district will even require vaccines for all students who are el- eligible. As COVID cases and hospitalizations rise across the country, pressure to introduce more vaccine and mask mandates is mounting. More than 91,000 people now hospitalized nationwide. 
I watched a 28-year-old previously healthy unvaccinated patient die from COVID complications. And while we value every life, that's, that one was tough because it could have been prevented. Hospitalization rates for children and adults under 50 setting new records. The biggest jump coming among adults ages 30 to 39 and children under 18, climbing more than 30 percent higher than their previous peak in early January, according to the CDC. In the two least vaccinated states in the country, Alabama and Mississippi, where just 36 percent are fully vaccinated, hospitals are strained. Hospitalizations in Mississippi setting a pandemic record as the state reports the highest seven-day average of new COVID cases per capita in the country. The surging cases leading Washington Governor Jay Inslee to issue one of the strictest vaccine mandates yet, requiring all teachers and staff in public and private schools to be vaccinated. We are well past the point where testing is enough to keep people safe. Near Los Angeles, Culver City will now require all students 12 and older to get vaccinated by mid-November. Teachers and staff must also get the shots. But battles over masking requirements in schools continue, with kids stuck in the middle. I mean, the masks are, like, uncomfortable, but it's for safety. If I wear my mask, that means I get to see my friends. I'll just wear a mask. In Florida, some 4,600 students and 1,500 employees across the 15 largest school districts have tested positive for COVID. And another 19,000 students and staff have been quarantined or isolated. Defying Governor Ron DeSantis, school boards voted to mandate masks in three additional counties, Miami-Dade and Palm Beach, and in Hillsborough, where quarantining students is becoming a new focus of outrage. Some parents are arguing it should be up to them whether they keep their child home from school after COVID exposure. The governor agrees. I think quarantining healthy kids deprives these kids of an ability to get an education. Now, maybe a parent would want a healthy kid to be quarantined if there's an exposure. But I think that should be the choice of the parent. It's an approach that flies in the face of public health guidance. We have a moral obligation to follow the science and keep our children safe. And now Oregon's state health authority will require all K-12 teachers, educators, staff, and volunteers to be fully vaccinated by October 18th or six weeks after full FDA approval. Governor Kate Brown saying children need to be in the classroom five days a week. And in order to do that, masks need to be worn and adults around those children need to be vaccinated. Jake? Athena Jones, thanks so much. Let's bring in the chief medical advisor to President Biden and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, good to see you. So this new booster guidance is quite different from what top health officials were saying even just a few days ago. Um, Listen to you talking about boosters last month and then one week ago. The CDC and the FDA said that based on the data that we know right now, we don't need a boost. Right now, the decision is we don't need to do it right now. It's not imminent. So that was August 12th. Uh, You said it wasn't imminent. Do you understand why some Americans are confused, uh, why the president has said that there is now this booster push? I mean, the World Health Organization says that the data is not there. Yeah, well, the the data are there, um, Jake. And, and what has really changed has changed relatively recently. The data that came out from the cohorts that the CDC have been following of tens and tens of thousands of people 
in different cohorts throughout the country together with some information that we very recently got from Israel, which I'll mention in a moment. So the situation is that when I made that statement, it was absolutely true. Based on the data, we've seen that people who were vaccinated, who were fully vaccinated, had very, very low likelihood that they would be hospitalized and get severe disease. The breakthrough infections that we were seeing, which are natural when you don't have a 100% effective vaccine, were in people and their disease was mostly mild or asymptomatic. And what was holding strong was the fact that you were having protection from severe disease. But what the CDC data that literally came out a few days before we made the announcement, we were getting it from their cohorts that they were following, that something different was going on. And that is the protection against infection and mild to moderate disease was beginning to attenuate in multiple cohorts of individuals, attenuate Mm -hmm that it was dropping. What was holding tight was against severe disease. But when you looked at the data in Israel, which is generally about a month or two ahead of us, not only was the protection against infection going down, but they were starting to see that the protection in certain people, like individuals in nursing homes, for severe disease was going down. So we made a decision that even though right now we're still holding strong, We want to stay ahead of things. We don't want to wait until all of a sudden a lot of people are getting hospitalized and a lot of people are dying. We want to be ahead of it and we want to be prepared for it to keep the durability of the protection up. That's a very important distinction. It's understandable how people might be confused, but it's kind of like I use the analogy. You want to skate where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is right now. And we want to have protection for what will happen a few months from now. So is the World Health Organization wrong when they say there isn't enough data to support boosters? Because obviously they're looking at information from more than just the United States. Or are they more guided by the idea that they want to get everybody in the world, and there are a lot of countries that lag way behind the United States and the West, uh, they want to get everybody vaccinated at least one shot or two shots before people like you and me get three shots? You know, I think it's more the latter, Jake, with all due respect to my very close colleagues in the WHO, and I understand where they're coming from. But we in the United States believe, first of all, the data are in our favor. If you look at the data that came out today and yesterday from Israel, is showing that the boosters is having a very favorable effect. So the data are there. But what I believe they're saying is something that is quite reasonable. They are concerned, and I am too, that most of the world in the low and middle income countries don't have vaccinations at anywhere near the level it should be, sometimes a couple of percent. But in the United States, Mm -hmm. we feel we can do both. You can protect our citizens maximally, and you can make a major contribution to getting vaccines to the rest of the world. And as a matter of fact, Jake, we are doing that. We can do more, and we will do more. But as you know, we've done more about doses to other countries, particularly low and middle, than the rest of the world combined. Right. We have a half a billion doses that are going out at 200 million at the end of this year and 300 million in the beginning of next year. We've already given over 115 Mm -hmm. million doses to 60 countries and $4 billion. We do believe there is an issue. We want to get doses to the rest of the world 
But we can do both things. We can protect our citizens and play the major role in getting vaccines to the rest of the world. Let's talk about kids and schools. Uh, for children under 12, Surgeon General Morthy says they, they're gonna pro- the FDA is going to move fast to approve the vaccines once they get the data. When should we expect a vaccine announcement about children under 12? You know, Jake, I have to be honest with you. I don't know. Uh, and I, I just can't get ahead of the FDA. I don't know where they are in their evaluation. There's a safety thing that they pay very close attention to. We look, we've done trials together with the companies and independently of doing dose escalation studies for children, namely going from 11 to 9, 9 to 6, 6 to 2, and so on. So far, it looks like there's no eminent, really big safety signal that we've seen, and it looks like we're inducing a good response. But the final decision, Jake, Mm -hmm. is a regulatory decision with the FDA. I hope that will be soon, but I can't guarantee it because they're an independent agency, which is a good thing, that they're independent, they look at the data. Right now, some states, Washington, Oregon, and some school districts uh, are mandating that teachers and faculty be vaccinated in order to protect kids and each other. Uh, But it seems to be in the minority. Uh, For anybody listening right now, any school districts or any teachers, do you think, if we're talking about protecting kids, the smart decision would be for school districts and states to mandate vaccine for all those who are eligible for teachers, faculty, and staff at schools. I feel strongly that way, uh, Jake. I really do. I mean, we want to protect our children. We want to keep them in school, physically in the classroom. We've spoken often on this show of the deleterious effects of keeping kids out of school physically, mental health issues, social developmental issues. But if you're going to do that, you've got to create a safe environment. And there are a few ways of doing that. One of the most important ways is to surround the children with people who are vaccinated if they're eligible to be vaccinated. And that means teachers and personnel in the school. We've got to maintain the safety of the children as at the same time we provide them with an education in a way that does not hinder them in the way virtual learning does. An important lesson for anybody in a school board or teacher's union or any uh, school administrator to, to hear. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much. Appreciate it. New York City is planning a celebration of the city's comeback in the wake of COVID, and you can watch exclusively on CNN. We love New York City. The homecoming concert airs Saturday starting at 5 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, the fight to punish January 6th insurrectionists and how online groups are working with law enforcement to help bring about justice. Stay with us. In our national lead, a charged insurrectionist's sentencing was just pushed back after online sedition hunters, volunteer sleuths who helped law enforcement track down suspects from the Capitol attack, unearthed this video, apparently showing Robert Reeder beating up a police officer. As CNN's Jessica Schneider now reports for us, This discovery forced prosecutors to rethink their charges against him just hours before the judge's decision. This video was a last-minute find by the group of amateur online detectives known as sedition hunters. On Wednesday, the same day the sentencing was scheduled for accused Capitol rioter Robert Reeder, the sedition hunters' Twitter page blasted out the video, spotlighting Reeder allegedly punching a police officer. 
The discovery had serious consequences because prosecutors had not accused Reeder of violence on January 6th, and his sentencing was only for the misdemeanor of unlawfully demonstrating inside the Capitol. Sedition hunters sent out this message online. We are extremely good at what we do. Our small group has spent thousands of hours on research, yet only four hours before a court hearing for a plea deal for Robert Reeder do we find the assault. This truly is a massive undertaking. Did we make it in time? Hashtag we hope. It was indeed in the nick of time. Prosecutors notified the judge and Reader's defense attorneys about the new footage Wednesday morning, and the judge delayed Reader's sentencing until October 8th. Federal Judge Thomas Hogan said he was concerned about the video since Reader was previously portrayed, quote, more as an observer than a participant. Reader's attorney admitted the clip was problematic at first glance, but argued there could be other footage uncovered to help his defense. The quick response to last-minute discovery of images showing a suspected assault clearly shows the dedication by all involved. It can be easily tens to hundreds of hours of time just following a bobbing head in a crowd, trying to put it together. John Scott Railton did his own scouring of images online of the so-called zip-tie guy, who was eventually identified as Eric Munchell, on January 6th. He says the public quickly followed his efforts and wanted to take part. Part of what's so inspiring about watching the Sedition Hunters community go is that it's about publicly holding people accountable and ensuring that the public understands what happened on that day, even as Republicans and others continue to try to rewrite history. And prosecutors have cited the work of these online sleuths in several court filings. And of course, Jake, the FBI has credited the public in this. They've received more than 200,000 digital tips from the public. And of course, at this point, more than 500 people have been charged. It's actually about 575 by our latest count. But as you saw in that piece, the public is doing a lot to help prosecutors out in these cases. And the key is, of course, they're sharing these tips privately so that in case they made a mistake... Nobody innocent gets tagged. Jessica Schneider, thank you so much. More than 2,000 people dead after two disasters in Haiti. CNN went to the earthquake epicenter where locals are taking action because the government has not shown up to help. Stay with us. In our world lead today, desperation in Haiti in the wake of the double disaster of an earthquake followed by a tropical storm. The epicenter of Saturday's Magnitude 7.2 quake is on Haiti's southern peninsula. Tropical storm Grace passed nearby early this week, dumping nearly a foot of rain. CNN's Matt Rivers went to that area and discovered help is not on the way. Driving into rural Haiti is not easy. Miles and miles of tough, unpaved roads. But it's at the end of those roads where some of the worst damage from this earthquake lies. This is Karai, a fishing town of 30,000, where hundreds of structures have been destroyed. Kilen Richard lost everything when the ground shook. I lost my business and my home, she says. I have six kids to send to school, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Hers was just the first home we saw. Up the street, we couldn't drive past this home, because like so many others here, what remains could collapse at any moment. So these guys behind me aren't professionals. They're just locals with hammer, wood, and nails trying to figure out a safe way to bring that severely damaged building behind me down to the ground. They told us in the nearly five days since this earthquake happened, they still have not had one representative from the central government show up. 
It's a tough place to get to, but as some pointed out to us, we managed to do it. So why hasn't the government? Anger, a persistent sentiment from many. This man's family was injured when their home collapsed. Do you think that the government can come here and help you? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. So you're not waiting for them? No. No. And are you frustrated with that? Yeah, yeah, very, very frustrated. I'm very frustrated. No matter the reason, the reality persists. People in need are growing increasingly desperate. I need help, she says, and no one is helping me. So far, it's only God who I think will help me. The place where she might pray for that, the church in the town center, also destroyed. Thankfully, fewer people died during this earthquake compared to previous similar quakes. Imagine, as one person told us, if it had happened on a Sunday morning when church was full. And Jake, we reached out to the central government asking, have you sent representatives to this area? If not, why? How are you going to make things better for the people there? We have not yet received a response. CNN's Matt Rivers in Haiti. Thank you so much. A dozen people are reportedly dead in Afghanistan. President Biden defiant about the chaotic exit from the country. That's next. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.